You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. We're joined today by Mark Henshaw author of the new novel, Red Cell, which is just out uh, May 1st, I think you said. Mark is a graduate of Brigham Young University, got his uh, master's degree in international relations and also his MBA there in 1999, and then went pretty much straight away to the CIA, where he began his career in the Office of Transnational Issues, and then later became a founding member of the CIA's Information Operations Center in 2001, where he is uh, presently uh, as a military analyst. In 2005, however, he took a three-year hiatus and um, undertook a rotation in the CIA's Red Cell, About uh, after which the book is titled. We'll talk about the Red Cell here in a minute. Mark has received uh, many awards for his work at CIA and in 2007 was recipient of the prestigious Director of National Intelligence's Galileo Award, which recognizes innovative and creative solutions to the United States' future intelligence challenges. Red Cell is his first novel. It's a novel in which case officer Kira Stryker and analyst Jonathan Burke play central roles in a confrontation with China. So, Mark Henshaw, welcome to the International Spy Museum. Oh, well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Mark, how did you come to write this book, which bears many resemblances to your own career, though perhaps it's a little more exciting in, uh, than, than your personal career has been, maybe? But uh, how did you come to write it? Well, you know, I'd, I'd always wanted to write some kind of a book. I'm one of those guys who wanted to see his name on a book. Um, and I've always been a fan of, you know, thrillers, and particularly military thrillers, those kinds of things. Um, and I had talked about it for a long time, and, yeah, it's an interesting story. I, I kind of had been just saying for a long time I wanted to do that, and but never got serious about writing it. And then uh, back in 2003, I went to work one day, and I, I won an exceptional performance award, which came with about $1,500 attached to it. And at the time, my wife and I were still paying off student loans and other things. And so I, I came home, and I told her I'd won this thing, and I said, which student loan do you want to throw this money at? And she looks me in the face, and she goes, we're not going to throw it at a loan. You're going to take that $1,500, and you're going to go buy a MacBook. And you're going to use that MacBook, and you are going to write that novel you keep mouthing off about all these years. And then she says, um, but here's the deal. She says, you have one year to write that book, and if you don't get it written in a year, I get the MacBook. <laughs> 
And what year was this again? This was 2003. Okay. Um, it actually took me about five years to write the book, um, but my wife was sufficiently satisfied with my progress every year that she kind of kept giving me a reprieve and let me keep going. So. Well, then, to thoroughly discourage the would-be authors out there, five years from 2003 is 2008. What happened with the other four? Uh, well, we had a couple of kids. Ah, okay. We moved the house one time. Other life events intervened, various things. And... You know, I, this being my first book, I was learning how to write a novel the hard way, you know, so I, I sort of had to start and then restart, and I think I started writing this thing about three times, and, you know, various things. So it was it was a hard road to, to take, you know. Well, one of the things I found, and I'm a former intelligence analyst myself, is that while intelligence writing or writing for the CIA in particular has its own purposes and is, I think, you know, really optimally designed for getting information into the heads of people like the president, it's not necessarily the kind of prose you'd want to read for fiction. Did you have to go through a lot of retraining so that you weren't writing uh, CIAEs or bureaucraties? Yes, CIA writing is pretty dry stuff. Um, but, you know, being in the red cell, they when you write a red cell report, their language is much more loose and much more creative than your typical stuff. So that actually sort of helped me get my mind in the right place to loosen up and do those kinds of things. And, as I said, I you know I had always read a lot of thrillers and other kinds of things, so I was familiar with that kind of stuff. So it, it didn't take too much retraining. It took a little bit, but it wasn't bad. Well, we'll come back to the Red Cell here in just a moment, but bef before we get there, CIA authors, at least writing nonfiction, have to have the agency review their work, mm -hmm. review their book for security. Uh, do they have to review novels? This is, after all, fiction. These things did not happen. Did the Publications Review Board have to have a look at this work? Oh, yes. Uh, they, they, read non they read fiction the same as they read nonfiction because, you know, you can leak stuff out through fiction just the same as you can nonfiction stuff. So, yeah, I wrote it, and I had to submit it to them and had to have it cleared and reviewed and everything. And the, the process actually was uh, surprisingly pleasant. It didn't take very long. It only took them about six weeks to go through the entire thing. And... and they requested a few minor changes, but nothing too severe, and um, then cleared it, and we were off. Uh, if anything, actually, I was quite surprised at sort of what they left in. Uh, I left the agency in 2003. Uh, you know, you're still there, but a lot of this rang really true to me about, you know, really is the way the place looks and the way the place feels, and and even down to the formatting of articles in the President's Daily Brief, which I was a little surprised they let you keep in there. But Yeah, it was, it was interesting that, uh, you know, when I submitted it to them, I had not censored myself too much writing this book. Um, I just sort of wrote the story I wanted to write, and then if they wanted something out, I was going to let them tell me what it was. And so I put it in, and like I said, they didn't ask for too many changes, and the changes they asked for were actually surprised me. They were not things I would have expected. The, the stuff I was expecting them to want to come out, they didn't say anything about that. It was a few other things that they said that they wanted to come out. So I, I did have to go make some minor changes, but, you know, the the atmospherics of the agency and all those kinds of things, they, they left it untouched. Well, we'll keep you out of trouble by not asking what they wanted you to take out. And let's <laughs> instead ask you, uh, in real life, before we get to the fictional version of it, in real life, what is the Red Cell? Uh, the Red Cell is a unit that was stood up by George Tenet on September 13, 2001. Um, about 30 seconds after that second plane hit the World Trade Center, uh, it became apparent very quickly inside the agency that there had been what was later called a failure of imagination. You know, it, it wasn't that the agency didn't have information that there was an Al-Qaeda plan in the works. It was simply that the plan was so far outside the envelope of what our counterterrorism experience was that simply nobody could conceive of this thing. Um, if if an analyst had walked into the counterterrorism center on September 10th, 
and said, I think Al-Qaeda is going to go hijack four planes and slam them into high-value targets simultaneously in one day, they would have been laughed out of the building. Nobody would have believed that. Um, and they wouldn't have had a factual basis to ground their argument on yeah, anyway. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't that much information to, to really put it all together. It would have taken somebody really thinking hard outside the box, and they would have had to have made some creative and, and logical leaps to put that together. And so George Tennant, uh, on September 12th, about midnight, was sitting down with Jamie Missick, and they were... You want to uh, tell us who Jamie Missick was? Oh, here? yeah. J- Jamie Missick at the time was uh, the, the second most senior analyst in the building. She was the uh, assistant deputy director for intelligence at the time, you know, one, one of the head analysts. And they were talking about what I just mentioned, that this was so far outside the envelope that, you know, just nobody could predict it. And so George Tennant was saying he wanted to put together a group of people who would think like that. Uh, he wanted people not just who would think out of the box, which is a term which has kind of become cliche. He said he wanted people who were willing to take their analysis to a whole new zip code. Um, and Jamie Missick liked that idea, and so they said, well, we'll put this thing together and we'll call it the Red Cell. And so they called a pair of analysts that night and said, be in Jamie's office at 8 in the morning. And they came on in, and they gave them this charge. They said, we want you to set up this unit. We're going to call it the Red Cell. We want them to be contrarians and conspiracy, conspiratorial thinkers uh, kind of people. Um, and George Tennant gave him an interesting mission. He said, I want you to tell me what no other analyst is telling me, and I want you to make the other analysts nervous. Okay, that's how far out he wanted them to be. And so they said, okay, we can do this, but we need your, we need some authority from you to do some things which are very non-traditional around here. We need, you know... We need to keep this unit small so bureaucracy doesn't really get involved internally. We need the permission to not coordinate our work. Perhaps you should explain what coordination means to an analyst. Yeah. Uh, Coordination means that when you write a piece, a piece of analysis, you circulate it around the building to other analysts who work, you know, similar and related topics, and they all take a look at it. And you all sort of beat on it and, you know, pound on it to make sure it's factually correct, that it's logically correct, those kinds of things. Um, and you can have some pretty intense uh, battles sometimes when somebody's, you know, coming to a kind of a controversial conclusion. So papers tend to get a little bit dumbed down sometimes. And, you know, the, these founders of the Red Cell said, we don't want to do that. We can't do that because we're going to be coming up with ideas which are sufficiently far out there that if other analysts um, get a chance, they will either water it down or they will kill it. So he said, we want you know, the power to not circulate those papers. Um, We'll send them courtesy copies. We're happy to talk to them, but we want the power to be able to publish what we want to say without other analysts being able to change it or or kill it. Um, So as you can imagine, those kinds of things were not calculated to make the Red Cell a very popular group. Well, I was just going to ask, the Red Cell, as you portray it in the book, is pretty unpopular, pretty, um, uh, in a lot of ways, pretty marginal, though the the one guy in your your red cell in the book has a good relationship with the director. But that aside, this is clearly, you know, sort of outcast and pariah. Is it, is it that extreme in the real world, uh, in the real red cell? There are times. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the red cell writes things which they say are plausible but not probable, okay? If, if you come to an analytic conclusion which is probable, then that's what the actual office ought to be writing on. Like the people who really are China analysts, for yeah. example, to go with what you talk about in the book. Yeah, the mainstream analysts, the, the real Korea analysts, the China analysts, the Russia, Russia analysts, whatever. Um, so they're writing about things which are plausible, which could happen, but they don't think are necessarily probable. And so they can come to some interesting conclusions sometimes. 
And as you might imagine, you know, because they're allowed to write on anything that any other analyst in the building can write on. Other analysts don't like people writing on their accounts. You this know? is my turf. This is my stuff. Yeah, you got I know all about this. I've been studying this for years, and you've been doing this for two days. Yeah, so and, and, and in fact, the Red Cell, um, at one point, they explicitly said, we don't want people who have experience in a subject writing on that subject. You know, they, you know, the original Red Cell group, when they brought them in, they specifically picked people who had no experience in counterterrorism and no experience in Middle Eastern affairs. And they started writing on it because they wanted to cultivate what Zen practitioners call the beginner's mind, you know, people who are not constrained by conventional wisdom or, you know, you sit there and you look at a subject for 10 years and you develop what's called expertise bias. You know, it's the sort of I'm the expert, I've seen it all, nothing, you know, and, and everything gets shoehorned into this model you develop in your mind, and they wanted to be free of that. So you have analysts who see this little group sitting there who is free to write on your on their subject and you can't stop them, you can't block them, you can't change what they're saying, you know. And so some people really don't like that. So, yeah, there have been some battles sometimes when they sent something out. And, you know, having been there for three years, I sort of came to the conclusion the only analysts in the building who don't have an opinion of the red cell are the ones who just haven't dealt with it yet. Um, everybody else sort of either loves it or hates it, and but... You know, you don't tend to have very many people in the middle who just don't have an opinion of it. Well, you've talked about the red cell being contrarian. You've uh, invoked Zen philosophy. I really liked your description in the book, which uh, mirrors apparently the reality. You want to describe what the red cell looks like as a place? Uh, well, when <laughs> or I did was, when you were there. When I was there, they, they've changed it a bit now. But when I was there and you walked in, um, yeah, it was very different from any other place in the building. You go into a regular. Um, DI analytic office, and it's just cubicles as far as the eye can see. You know, it's kind of a cubicle farm. Typical government, you know, sort of a place. But you walk in the red cell originally, and there were no cubes, okay? It was more like a newspaper bullpen um, where, you know, you had your desk, and then there was nothing separating you from the guy who was sitting next to you. The entire vault was maybe 25 or 30 feet square total. You had about five guys who were in there. And because there was nothing separating you from anybody else in the vault, when a discussion got going, everybody could just sort of jump in, you know, and you'd have guys sitting back and talking to each other and bouncing off the walls. And they had some of the most interesting stuff on the walls. There was this, you know, I don't know where they scratched this, but it was an authentic Russian poster full-size of Vladimir Lenin um, hanging on one wall. On the other wall, there was a picture of a young Ronald Reagan dressed as a cowboy with six shooters drawn pointing at Lenin. <laughs> um, on the far on the wall between the two of them, there was this Chinese communist propaganda poster. It was a disembodied head of Mao with all the peasants sort of reaching up towards him, and he's sort of like mediating the gunfight between these two guys. And, um, so it was just this very interesting place. Had a lot of character to it. You know, you just didn't see this kind of thing in other places in the building. And it, it was a place that was very much, you know, I don't want to quite say calculated to provoke those kinds of discussions, but between that and the layout and the kinds of people that they had there, you know, it was a really intellectually stimulating environment to be in for several years. One of the two protagonists in your book, uh, Kira Stryker, uh, is assigned to the Red Cell, but she's actually a case officer. She's an officer from the National Clandestine Service who are decidedly not analysts mm -hmm. uh, normally. Is this something that actually happens in the Red Cell, that case officers might be in the Red Cell or other non-analyst types? Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, when I was there, um, 
when I first went in there and they assigned me my desk, I was between one guy who was a very senior DI analyst and another guy who had come from the then Directorate of Operations, now called the National Clandestine Service, and sat between them for about a year and a half, and then the, the, the case officer went back uh, to there. So I'm not quite sure how he landed the red cell, but, you know, he was, he was very much case officer type. But, you know, in, in Kira's case, she's, she's sent there, you know, sort of to hide her a little bit. Um, the, the way that the red cell works is anybody in the building is allowed to write a red cell, not just the analysts who are there, but any other analyst who wants to write something unconventional can write a red cell and go in and work with the red cell team to produce this thing. And so in the book, um, that's kind of the role she takes. They say, we're going to send you over here under the auspices of you're going to just be one of these people who kind of drops in. Because she's had a bit of an operational disaster in, if I recall, Venezuela, and she's yes. yeah. things are hot and she needs to hide in the bureaucracy. Yeah, um, she's, she's being scapegoated for something that happened in Venezuela, and the director of the agency has actually been ordered by the DNI to fire her, okay, to literally hang her out to dry. And... The CIA director realizes what's going on. She's like, I'm not going to scapegoat this girl, so I'm going to have to go hide her for a little while until we can make this right. And so that's where she chooses to put her. And, you know, she puts her in the red cell for two reasons. Number one, because it's the kind of place where she can sort of hide her. And number two, because the CIA director knows Jonathan, the guy who's in the red cell, and they have a good relationship, and she knows that Jonathan will sort of take care of this, this young girl who's there. Jonathan Burke is a bit of a difficult character, though, obviously brilliant. Is he you? Is <laughs> um, j- yeah, that's an interesting question. You seem like a nice guy. You seem much nicer than Jonathan does. I, I have more of a filter than Jonathan does on my mouth. Um, yeah, Kira is more sort of like I was when I started 13 years ago, a little bit young, a little bit innocent kind of thing. Jonathan is sort of more me 13 years later after you've sort of been through, you know, some of these experiences. and. Um, you know, he's, he's not me, but I think any writer can't help but inject parts of themselves into some of their characters. So I have injected some of myself into him. And, you know, yeah, I do sometimes think some of the things that Jonathan actually says. Jonathan is your inner monologue. Yeah, something like that. But I, I would hope that I have enough of a filter that I don't actually say some of those things. But, um, well, we're not going to name him, but uh, for, for our audience, I actually spent three or four months back in 2003, so before you were there, but not for nearly as long a time, working in the Red Cell, and one of our, one of my office mates, I guess, was one of your office mates, and I also saw certain pieces of yeah. that person, we've talked about him, off mic uh, in Jonathan, just a little tiny bit. Yeah, it, it takes a certain kind of personality to survive and thrive in the Red Cell, and you do see some of that in Jonathan. Um, I mean, I don't want to say that you're the kind of person who intentionally provokes hostility in others, but you have to be the kind of person who can sort of tolerate it and even not be afraid to, uh, to engage in it when necessary. You know, I was, when I'd been in the Red Cell for a few months, I saw some of this outside hostility directed towards the Red Cell, and I asked the, one of these two gentlemen who'd stood the thing up, I said, you know, how do you, how do you deal with this kind of hostility? Because I had not encountered that in six years in the DI. And he just looked at me, and he said something, which I Jonathan says in the book. He said, hostility is the acceptable price of doing this business. Um, you know, and, and it's the kind of place where you have to develop a pretty thick skin, or you just tend to get out, because sooner or later you're going to write or say something controversial or contrary and somebody else is going to really disagree with, and they're going to push back. And you have to learn pretty quickly to be able to stand up and defend your analysis and your reasoning in the face of people who are ver- working very hard to try and tear it down. 
Um, so Jonathan just happens to be extraordinarily good at that. In the book, uh, there's a central role for something called Assassin's Mace. Is yeah. this a real thing or a fictional thing? What, no. are we, what are we talking about here? No, that's quite real. Um, quite real, okay. Explain. Yeah. Um, well, back in the mid-'90s, um, during the last Taiwan Strait crisis, um, President Clinton did what, you know, presidents have occasionally done, you know, when, when the Chinese were starting to rattle the saber. Uh, Clinton ordered uh, an aircraft carrier into the Taiwan Strait, the, the Nimitz, to go and sort of calm things down. So between the Chinese mainland and Taiwan? And Taiwan, yeah. I mean, the, the presence of an aircraft carrier battle group tends to have a sobering effect a lot of times on people who are, you know, getting rowdy. And the president of China at the time, Zhang Zemin, you know, he kind of turned to other members of the Central Military Commission, which runs the, the PLA. And he asked them, he says, well, what can we do about this? And the answer came back, well, really, nothing. <laughs> you know, we just, we don't have the capability, really, to take on a, an aircraft carrier battle group. And Zhang Zemin got very upset, and he said something which was a little confusing at the time. He said, bring me an assassin's mace that we can use against the Americans. Um, in ancient Chinese history, assassin's mace, which is the actual term, um, translated into English, of course, um, it was a little weapon that, you know, an assassin would carry around in his robe, and if somebody approached him and, you know, looking to fight him, he could whip it out and stab him through the heart before the fight even got going, kind of thing. So it was sort of this hidden weapon. Sort of a secret, yeah, secret yeah, weapon kind of thing. That could okay. be pulled out and, you know, knife him. And... So the, the Chinese military at that point uh, really sort of kicked into high gear and started a, a big sort of research effort. You know, the, the Assassin's Mace Project is actually sort of an umbrella term for a broad range of research projects that they have going on, um, which is all about trying to develop weapons which would allow them to hold the United States at bay during a serious, you know, Pacific crisis, whether it's over Taiwan or, or some other kind of thing. They want the ability to, you know, face off against one of our carrier battle groups. And so they've, they've done research into a really broad range of some fairly exotic weapons in some cases. And um, without giving too much away in the course of the book... No spoilers here. Yeah. Um, you know, something starts going on in China, and the Chinese are not acting like they're worried about a carrier battle group coming in and so Jonathan starts thinking, you know, I wonder if they have succeeded at developing something. There's some assassin's mace that they can use against us, and this kicks off this red cell effort to try and figure out what this might be. Um, and then that leads to the logical conclusion of the book, which ends up in a big battle, you know, between the U.S. and China. In the real world, do red cell personnel get involved in, you know, real adventures like this? I know Kira goes off and at any rate has, has adventures in this book. Is that, is that something real? or uh, I'm reminded of Jack Ryan, the, the, the probably the most famous fictional DI analyst who seemed to spend very little time at his desk and a lot of time out in the field getting shot at. Is that, is that the real world? Yeah, they, they, they say that Jack Ryan's an analyst when really he's more of a black ops guy. That's <laughs> what he is. No, you know, the Red Soul guys do occasionally get out from behind the desk and they do go get to travel. And, you know, I know some who have taken trips overseas been asked to consult with the military and have actually gone, you know, to some to some hot spots. They don't, as a general rule, tend to get involved in, you know, serious kinds of things. I tried to keep the book as realistic as I can, but, you know, at some point it is a thriller. There do have to be some thrills. And that's part of the reason I wanted this case officer in there. I wanted somebody who was always sort of chomping at the bit. I want to get out. I want to go do things. And I think I was able in a fairly realistic fashion 
able to put her in places where the CIA director would say, okay, it makes sense to allow her to participate in some of these things that are going on. That's one of the things I thought was interesting about the book was this contrast, if you will, between the culture of the DI, the analysts, and the culture of the clandestine service, the operators, the case officers, uh, Kara in particular. Um, pursuant to that, what's the dark side? And is this a term that really gets bandied about in the building? Um, well, uh, the DI sort of more describes the NCS as the dark side. I don't think the NCS actually describes themselves that way. But, yeah, I mean, you know, to be a good case officer, you have to be a very extroverted kind of person. You have to, you know, charismatic and engaging and a, a people person kind of thing. DI analysts, you know, tend to be much more introverted. Um, you know, there, there's an old joke, you know, how can you tell the DI analyst from the NSA analyst? And the, the NSA analyst is the guy who's looking at the other person's shoes when they walk, and the DI analyst is looking at his own shoes when they walk. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, Jonathan in the book, he's the kind of guy who's he's happy to sit in the red cell with the door closed and nobody coming in, and he just does his thing, and he doesn't like people coming into his space and talking to him and stuff. Whereas Kira is normally a much more extroverted person, although she's come to the red cell at a time when she's sort of emotionally damaged a little bit, so she's lost some of that. But she, you know, she very much is still a case officer at heart, a much more extroverted person than Jonathan, so she's kind of pulling on him to get him outside. Um, and Jonathan does a couple times describe the NCS as the dark side, but he recognizes that what they do is valuable and important. And at one point he tells her, you know, I want you to go to this office and I want you to talk them into giving us this information you know, give us these papers that we need to do this. And she says, well, what if they don't want to give them to me? And his answer is, well, if you have to ask permission before you grab something, you're working for the wrong agency, you know. When we say the dark side, it's kind of done tongue-in-cheek, you know. We recognize that it's important, and the people who do it, I think these are good folks, so. Who is Pioneer in your book? Pioneer is a longtime uh, CIA asset in Beijing. Uh, he's a Chinese national who actually works as a system administrator uh, for the Chinese intelligence service, the, the Ministry of State Security. Um, he's sort of the Chinese version of Vasily Matrokin, if you know who that is. Um, and I won't give away sort of why he's doing what he's doing, you know. Um, but he's this guy who's been at this for probably about 25 years. And he ends up in a position where it becomes obvious that he's been identified. By the Chinese. By the Chinese. By the Chinese security. Yeah. And they, they haven't rolled him up yet, you know, and, and he's not sure why, and the agency's not sure why, but they know that, you know, the, the Chinese have got their eye on him, and at some point he's probably going to be grabbed and rolled up, and that's going to be the last you're going to see of him. Um, so he's he's in this interesting place where he's been doing this for so long, he's, re he's really kind of stressed, you know, you can't you can't turn traitor and operate actively against your own country for 25 years without sort of coming under this really intense stress every minute of every day of your life. It's got to be a horrible burden in real life. Yeah, you think about this. You know, he's kind of this guy who, in the first time you meet him, he's described almost as an Edgar Allan Poe kind of character where he's got these little, you know, the, 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 the these little voices in his head which are always sort of threatening to sort of drive him crazy. Um, but he just sort of keeps plowing forward, and when he realizes he's been found out, then the big question for him becomes, is the CIA actually going to pull me out or are they going to leave me to die? And he's honestly not sure. You know, he, he just doesn't know. He, you know, the agency's promised him that they will if it comes to that, but he's a realist, and he recognizes that sometimes 
political considerations may intervene, and he may get left. So he's sort of living with this death sentence hanging over his head, and he does not know what's going to happen to him. So Pioneer is providing very important reporting that actually matters quite a lot in the context of your book, and that leads to an interesting issue here. Can you explain a little bit what compartmentation is and what you know, the, 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 the troubles that it causes, if you will, in the analytic world, and yet why we do it, what it is? Yeah, um, you know, there, there is some reporting from some assets which is so valuable and at the same time so sensitive um, that you simply can't. And by sensitive, actually, I'm sorry to interrupt, by sensitive you mean in what sense? In the sense that the source is very vulnerable and could end up arrested and dead at any moment if, yeah, if it, there's a security slip? Yeah, it's, it's the kind of information where, you know, if, if, it gets, if that information gets out, you know, it'll become apparent to the home country that, you know, there's a very limited number of people who could even know that information, could have access to it. And so if it gets out there, that country's counterintelligence services could very quickly start narrowing down the list of suspects as to who this is. And you end up with an asset who suddenly, you know, he gets taken out and that entire stream of reporting dies and goes away. And, and then he, he probably dies. Yeah, he does. And <laughs> bullet to the head. And, and Pioneer is the kind of guy, you know, he, he is one of the senior archivists for the Ministry of State Security, so he has access to everything that's going through there. You know, he's the one who, who's filing all of the reports going through the MSS. And so, you know, he's reporting on such a broad swath of things that if these things start getting leaked in a hurry, it would quickly become apparent who is leaking this. And so what you do to protect your assets um, is you take that stuff and you put it in a compartment and you severely restrict the number of people who can read that reporting. You know, you're simply making it very difficult for that information to leak out because you're just not letting a very large number of people, even though it exists, if they do know it exists, not very many people get to actually read what the reports are or, you know, they may have multiple compartments, break it up across multiple compartments, so, okay, I can read stuff on this weapon development system but not that one, you know, kind of a thing. So you're just... You're, you're trying to protect that asset by severely restricting who can see his stuff. Presumably this comes at a cost to analysis itself, though. Yeah. You don't know what you don't know, and, and you're, you may not be aware that the answer to your, to your problem, to your question, may actually exist, but in a, part, in a compartment you're not cleared for. Yeah, absolutely. And Jonathan and Kira go through a similar process of where they infer, oh, wait a minute, there must be a compartment that contains information that will help us with this problem. Yeah, jo Jonathan goes through a little bit of Sherlock Holmes-type deduction and figures out that this compartment exists and that they need to have access to it. But the problem is, is even once you know the compartment exists, trying to convince uh, the NCS to let you have access to it and read it becomes a problem because for the NCS, you know, Pioneer is one of their crown jewels. And they're like, there's no way we're going to let you read his stuff because he's so good that if anything ever happens to him, we're in trouble, and, and so we're just we're not going to let anybody see this. And so there there is this sort of natural tension, in that yes, you want to preserve the safety of the asset, but if you go so far and and block off everything that so nobody gets to read what he's reporting, then what good is it to have that asset in the first place? It's so you have this natural tension that the asset becomes no good if you don't allow the information to get into the hands of the people who really need to know the information. And so you end up with this sort of bureaucratic fight in the book where Jonathan eventually ends up sort of having to appeal to the CIA director saying, we really need this. 
and the director of the NCS is like, no, I really don't want you to, <laughs> to see that stuff. And, and so the director sort of has to intervene and, and give assurances and do some other kinds of things. And, you know, there are no bad guys in that situation. I mean, you know, the NCS has very definite needs to protect their assets, you know, but the, the analysts have very definite needs to access the information, and it's just one of those difficult things about the business trying to figure out where's the right balance between protection and access to the information so that everybody can sort of get what they need. It's, it's just a hard thing that you have to work out on a case-by-case basis. There's no perfect answer in the world of intelligence. No, there's not. Very, very, very rarely. So. Last couple of questions here. First off, how has the real Red Cell responded to this book? Uh, they actually really like it. Um, it was surprising. I'm not even sure how they heard that it existed. I didn't tell them. I just got a, uh, an email from one of them who said, hey, you've written this book. And, you know, I ended up bringing them a couple of copies and signing when I think everybody who's there now has read the book. Um, they asked me for a Photoshop file of the cover, and I sent it to them, and I, I went back in to visit them the other day, and they had gotten it blown up into a movie poster-sized thing to hang on the wall, and they asked me to go sign it and sign their books, and they had these other smaller you know, poster-sized sheets that they wanted me to sign so they could give it out to people in the building. And I asked him, I said, so what do you think about this? And the, the head of the cell said, oh, th this is great. If this book sells a lot of copies, it might finally make us sort of politically unkillable. <laughs> you know? So they, they're very excited about it, and they, they like it, and they, they appreciate that it, you know, they said they think it does a pretty good job of reflecting, you know, sort of the way that they look at the world and the way that they do a lot of their business. You said you like to read thrillers. Uh, are there any spy fiction authors that you particularly read or uh, enjoy, or do you read non-spy fiction? I tend to read a lot more nonfiction than I do fiction. You know, as a military analyst, I, I read a fair amount of military history. I'm on a Civil War kick these days. Um, for the fiction stuff, you know, I, I do appreciate a lot of the early works of Tom Clancy. I have a um, first edition Naval Institute press copy of The Hunt for Red October sitting on my shelf at home. That's a bit of a rarity. Yeah. Um, you know, I really like... Um, you know, John le Carre, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy has got to be one of the great novels of all time, uh, spy novels. Uh, Frederick Forsyth's Day of the Jackal is just absolutely fantastic. You know, um, in my mind, it's a toss-up between sort of those two books for which one might be the greatest spy novel of all time. So, you know, I do read them, but I, you know, when it, when it comes to spy novels and movies and television, I'm very particular because if they veer too far off of reality, I have a hard time watching them. You know, much to my wife's dismay, I have a hard time suspending disbelief with some of those kind of shows. So I actually don't watch too many of them. Last question then. Is there another book in you after this one? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm already working on another one. Um, Hopefully it won't take you ten years this time. I don't think so. I, I know a lot better now uh, how to actually write a book, which I didn't know at the time I started the, the first one. Um, so yeah, I, I think I've got a good idea for the next one, and it will be a sequel to this. A lot of the same characters will appear. Jonathan and Kira will be in it. Kathy Cook, the CIA director, will be in it. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of room for all those characters to grow, and, and I'm happy to follow them around and, and see where it all leads. Good. Well, Mark Henshaw, best of luck both with this book and the next one, and thank you so much for joining us here at the International Spy Museum. Yeah, thank you for having me. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.